Welcome to a special episode of the Story Grid Editor Roundtable podcast. I'm Jari Bolander, and here with me are my four fellow certified Story Grid editors, Valerie Francis, Ann Holly, Kim Kessler, and Leslie Watts. Based on our listeners' feedback, we decided to do this special episode to explain the six core questions in a little more detail. That way, when you listen to our analysis, you'll understand why these questions will help you become a better writer and editor. So this podcast will tackle the topic behind the topic, and we will discuss what are the six core questions by answering the following questions. What does each one mean? Why do I need to know about it? And how is it going to help me edit my novel? After we get through the six core questions, we'll also answer some frequently asked questions that our listeners have asked us on Twitter and in reviews on Apple Podcast and Stitcher. We really appreciate all these comments and reviews. It's wonderful that you, the listener, engage in getting insights into how to become a better writer and editor. That was the original reason the five of us came together. And it's great that you are on the journey with us as well. So let's begin. What are the editor's six core questions and why do they matter? So for this one, we're going to quote from Robert McKee. The principle of creative limitation calls for freedom within a circle of obstacles. Talent is like a muscle. Without something to push against, it atrophies. So we deliberately put rocks in our path, barriers that inspire. We discipline ourselves as to what to do while we are boundless as to how to do it. One of our first steps, therefore, is to identify the genre or combination of genres that govern our work. For the stony ground that grows the most fruitful ideas is genre conventions. So that's sort of our inspiration for (laughs) digging into all these. So let's get started with the most important question that yourself as a writer needs to answer. What is my genre? And for that, Valerie's going to kick us off. Absolutely. I love this question. So what is genre? Basically, genre means the kind of story that you're writing. Now, here's the rub. Because you're now an author, you have to look at the kind of story that you're writing in a different way. We all started as readers. So when we thought about the kind of story we wanted to read, we thought about the sections in the bookstore. We want to read a mystery. We want to find a cookbook. We want to find a biography. So we would go to that section in the bookstore and pull it out. And if you are like me and you love fantasy novels, you will say to yourself when you become a writer, I want to write fantasy. The thing is that genre is not the same thing as an Amazon category. It's not a sales category. It is if you're looking at it from a marketing perspective, but we're looking at story right now from the creative perspective point of view. You got to write the story before you can market the thing. So let me give you an example to explain what I'm talking about. Let's stick with the, um, my favorite example is The Martian. People say it's a science fiction story and it is, but as a writer, you have to recognize that it's actually an action adventure story as well as a science fiction story. To make sense of this, we have to remember that The story grid, genre clover, has five leaves on it. One is for time, one is for structure, 
Then there's style, reality, and content. The time leaf is pretty straightforward. How much time will your reader have to spend with the project? Are you writing a short story or a novella or a novel? The structure leaf means what is the plot structure of your book? Are you writing an arch plot, which would be the hero's journey primarily, a mini plot or an anti-plot? Please don't write anti-plot. Style. Sean lists 10 options here because stories are told in different media through novels, screenplays, stage plays, so on. But for novelists, there's really only four options here that really relate. And those are comedy, drama, literary, and epistolary. And epistolary is a series of letters or journal entries like Dracula, Bridget Jones's Diary is another epistolary. The Martian is also an epistolary novel. The fourth leaf is reality. And that has to do with the kind of world that you're writing in. So for those of you who write contemporary romances, you're writing an everyday world, which means it's everyday. People don't need to, to stretch their imagination too far. Now, if you're writing a fantasy novel or a science fiction novel, you're creating a whole world. Something like The Lord of the Rings, you have to create Middle Earth. That is where it starts to break into fantasy, science fiction, lit RPG, and so on. The last leaf is the one that we tend to talk about most often. And we're guilty of this here on the podcast. Uh, and it's something that the five of us have been talking about. And we want to make sure that we clarify this for you guys. The content leaf is what we tend to think of as genre when we're looking at it from a reader's perspective. So when we say we want to write a mystery novel, well, mystery is on the content leaf and it's a type of content genre because it relates to the subject matter of what you're writing about. So are you writing a love story or a Western or an action story or a thriller or a coming of age story? And the content leaf has external content genres and internal content genres. And I've got a I've got a link in the show notes where you can download a copy of the StoryGrid Five Leaf Clover if you don't have it already. Okay, so why do you need to know this? It's really simple. If you are not crystal clear about your genre, that is, if you haven't made a clear choice from each of the five leaves on the clover, then you're going to have a very difficult time writing a story that works. You are going to get confused and you'll get frustrated which means that your reader will get confused and frustrated. In fact, the reader might not even make it to the end of the book, and he surely won't recommend your book to his friends. Your choice of genre impacts every aspect of your story. And this is what Anne and Leslie and Kim are going to talk to you more about now as the podcast goes on. So how is this going to help me edit my novel? You have to make a firm decision on the global genre of your story, and you can pick only one. Argue with me all day long on that if you like. You have to pick one. And the reason I'm saying that is to make your life easier, quite frankly. Now, in saying that, your story will likely have elements of many genres because stories reflect life and life doesn't exist in a vacuum. So yes, you could have elements of other genres. You could have a subplot, like if you're writing an action story that has a love story subplot. Well, right away you have two genres, but the global story is an action story. So pick one global genre and stick to it. Genre mashups. 
Writers love to talk about genre mashups. They're extremely difficult to pull off. I just came back from the Robert McKee Story Seminar in New York. It was four very intense days, 12-hour days. And one of the first thing he said was, genre mashups are, well, he said they're very difficult to pull off and they're only for the master storytellers because you need to be a master storyteller and have a really in-depth knowledge of story and experience telling story in order to know how to bring different genres together. And what new writers tend to do is think they're writing a genre mashup because they have elements of many genres within their story. That's not a genre mashup. That's Well, it could be just a confusion, depending on how you pull it off. But if you have one story that is your global story, one genre, and you stick to that, even if you have glimpses of other genres in there, your story is going to be a lot easier to follow for you and for your reader. And it's going to ultimately be more interesting for them. If you try to smush two genres together, or you get confused about what kind of story that you're telling, your reader is going to get confused as to what kind of story they're reading. So that is why you need to know what your genre is, why you need to know it, and it's going to help you to edit your novel because you'll know exactly what elements you need to include, what ones you get rid of, and how it can sharpen your first draft to give you a better second draft and ultimately a better novel. Thanks, Valerie. Um, Kind of the way I think about this is genre is like a music category. It basically sets the expectations. I don't ever think of this as a formula, as more of a framework. So if you're a jazz fan and you're listening to Raids Against the Machine and expect like Charlie Parker, for example, you're going to be really, really disappointed. And that's the same thing when you're reading a book. So it's really not a formula that we're talking about. It's an expectation. Uh, and as we talk more and more about this, you'll kind of get a sense of of why the story grid framework is a great way to put the scaffolding in for your story and in a good way for you as an as a writer and more importantly as an editor to understand kind of where things are going. And and as Valerie mentioned, you really want to keep it simple because if you start getting confused as the writer, your reader is going to get really confused. So the next question we're going to talk about is the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. And Leslie's going to take us through that. Okay. So the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff are part of basic story form or structure for everything from flash fiction to an epic fantasy novel. You can contrast this with plot form in which we look at the genre conventions and obligatory scenes. Okay, so the entire story generally consists of a three-act structure. This is not the only way to structure a story, but it's a great place to start if you're new to writing fiction. The beginning hook is the first about 25% of the story. It sets up reader expectations and it raises questions in the mind of the reader to hook them and bring them into the story. The middle build is approximately 50% of the story and that builds tension as the protagonist faces increasingly difficult obstacles and the stakes are raised as they are forced to take risks to get what they want and need. 
The ending payoff is about 25% of the story, and it should provide a surprising yet inevitable payoff of reader expectations that answer those big questions that were raised in the beginning hook. Now, each of these acts is comprised of the five commandments of storytelling, and those are explained in a lot of different places, so I'm just going to hit the high points here. The inciting incident upsets the status quo for the protagonist and can be causal, coincidental, or ambiguous, and those explanations will be in the show notes. Then we come to a turning point progressive complication. So this is an action or revelation, and those will be in the show notes. And these force the protagonist into a dilemma. Now that dilemma is the crisis, sometimes called the crisis question. It's what the protagonist or point of view character faces. It can be a best bad choice where two options are available, neither of which is appealing, or a choice between irreconcilable goods. Either you have two appealing but mutually exclusive options or an option that's good for you but bad for someone else. Then we move into the climax which is the answer to that question posed by the crisis, or we could say the decision that the character makes, plus the action they take as a result of the decision. And that brings us to the resolution, which is a combination of the consequences that flow from the character's decision and action in the climax. It's often the setup for the inciting incident of the next act. Now, many of your scenes, these 15 scenes, that is the five commandments of storytelling within each act, the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff, many of them will be genre specific. For example, the inciting incident of the beginning hook in a love story is usually the lover's meet scene. In a crime story, we establish the crime. In a worldview maturation story, it's an opportunity or challenge to the protagonist's view of the world. So again, the result is 15 scenes that are a useful summary of your story. Notice I say useful because you could summarize your story in a lot of different ways, but what you want to do with these 15 scenes are Find the major turning points, the major events that are creating the cause and effect relationship to the life value shift. So our goal as we develop this is to move toward the clarity of expressing each act in a single sentence that demonstrates the life value shift that takes place from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. And those five commandments are the elements of that sentence. So here's an example from Carrie, which we discussed earlier this season, which is a horror story. Carrie gets her first period and is terrified by the experience while the other students mock her. And later, her mother, Margaret, accuses her of having lustful thoughts. And when her mother locks her in the closet to pray, Carrie is able to control her gifts and her mother lets her out in the morning. That's the beginning hook. 
the middle build is Carrie goes into a school bathroom after being taunted and is pleased when she can crack the mirror. And when she agrees to go to the prom with Tommy, Margaret tries to stop her. But when the mother threatens to tell Tommy about how Carrie was conceived, Carrie is able to control her gift, though she takes control of the situation and puts her mother in the closet. The ending payoff is Carrie and Tommy go to the prom where Chris and her boyfriend Billy dump a bucket of pig's blood on the couple. And when Chris drops the bucket and it kills Tommy, Carrie is not able to control her gift, but uses it to destroy the school, kill Billy and Chris, and ultimately kill her mother after Margaret stabs her, though she saves Sue, who is pregnant with the girl. Now, there's a lot in there. And if you're not really familiar with the story, it could be a little confusing. But if you know the story, you can see how this encapsulates the major action and the major consequences of the story. So why do we need to know this? I feel like I've really already covered this in explaining it, but this is basic story form. If you don't observe this form, you interfere with the reader's experience and your ability to convey your unique expression of human nature. Now, does every successful story observe this form to the letter? Nope. In that case, there must be something else going on for them that overcomes this. You shouldn't count on being able to do that, especially if you are early in this journey. If you want to forgo this form, for example, if you did want to write an anti-plot story, you at least need to understand what you're giving up and how that affects the reader's experience. Now, how is this going to help me edit my novel? Stories are more than a series of events, and as Anne often reminds us, stories are not real life and characters are not real people. We use story structure or form to impose order on the chaos of life, and this acts as a filter to help us leave out the boring bits. We can come to a clear cause and effect statement about some aspect of life and the means of meeting our needs. So if your story is a journey from point A, that is the beginning life value, to point B, that is the ending life value, these 15 scenes give you the rest stops along the route to right toward and away from. Can I just add, too, that knowing those 15 scenes and being able to sum up your three acts in a basically a sentence apiece is absolutely essential when it comes time to pitch your novel, write your cover blurb, do anything that you, where you have to compress it and tell somebody about it. It's an indispensable skill to have. Totally agree. And, and it's also great how the math works. Since I'm, I'm actually an engineer by training and, and a writer kind of by accident, this for me is one of the things that reduces my anxiety so much because I love frameworks. As my day job, I have developed a lot of products and we use frameworks in order to build web apps and hardware and all sorts of other things. And this to me is exactly the same thing. This is a framework to gauge yourself against, to see your progress. And it's also a common language so that you and your editor can kind of figure out what's working and not working. And one of the things that we hear a lot is when writers want to hire an editor, sometimes they get disappointed because... The feedback is vague or not as crisp and clean. 
And this is a great way to have those conversations about what's working and what's not working so that you as a writer can understand and up your game and, you know, level up your craft. But if you're spinning your wheels and you can't wrap your head around how you're going to get your novel done because, you know, you really want to get your art in the world, it's always good to have a framework. You can't break the rules till you know the rules. So that was really wonderful. Thanks, Leslie, for that. The next question is the conventions and obligatory scenes, and we're going to break this up. So, Anne, if you could take us through the conventions. I can. First question is, what are conventions? Uh, Different writers on writing define this term differently, but for story grid purposes, uh, Sean talks about how there are specific requirements concerning the story's cast of characters, the setting, or the methods of moving the plot forward. He has also said conventions and obligatory scenes are like the legs, backrests, and seats of chairs. Without them, you don't have a chair, which I enjoyed. Where do they come from? The short answer is that they come from a long human history of storytelling. One of the questions that writers ask us is, well, conventions change, don't they? Well, yeah, they they can. They do over time. Some of them are really married to fundamental sort of hero's journey or virgin's promise tropes or archetypes. But some of them do kind of shift over time. And one example that I can think of is that there were no thriller conventions before the thriller genre arose out of crime, action, and horror. At the same time, one of the horror conventions is the use of technology to conceal and slowly reveal the monster via devices like radios and security cameras that obviously didn't exist when Bram Stoker wrote Dracula. So yeah, they change. Some of them can change. So the conventions as we currently know them are kind of like a snapshot in time, sort of a moving target. But we should pay attention to what they are now. And as filmmakers and writers innovate on old established conventions, some of those conventions will drift, new ones will arise, old ones will be innovated until they actually morph into something else. Story structure seems to be a constant, but stories change with time. So why do I need to know the conventions? Okay, well, let's think about this in terms of another form of convention, which is table manners. Why on earth does it matter which fork you use? It doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. Unless you're dining at La Tour d'Argent in Paris. That's a really fancy, like the fanciest restaurant in the world. I've never been there. But in that story, the story of dining at that fancy restaurant, you'd better use the right fork or everyone around you will know that you don't fit in. Now, why does it matter how you hold your chopsticks? It doesn't, except that holding them inappropriately or not knowing how to use them marks you as an outsider to the story of a big Sichuan meal in Chengdu. So by the same token, if you insist on using a fork and knife to eat your pizza at a New York City hole-in-the-wall pizza joint, you're going to look kind of uppity. They don't even have knives and forks there. Your story isn't meeting the expectations that you have set for it by walking into the pizza joint. You don't fit in. You don't make sense in the context of the story you set out to tell. And if you want to break all the rules and eat with your hands or put your face right down into your plate, you can do that. But chances are nobody will want to eat with you. So if, in case you haven't followed that analogy, probably most people won't want to read your book. So a good exercise for conventions is to imagine a favorite movie or novel without the conventions of its genre. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Billy Elliot without Mrs. Wilkinson, who is the mentor, and the mentor is a convention of the performance story. He wouldn't have a teacher. The story wouldn't happen. 
imagine Alien where you get a clear, well-lit look at the monster from the very beginning. It violates the horror convention of use of technology and the horror convention of creeping us out gradually by gradually revealing the monster. Um, imagine the Avengers where Tony Stark doesn't sacrifice himself for his fellow Avengers. That's the sacrifice for brotherhood convention in a war story. And how much of a thriller would Silence of the Lambs have been if Starling had all the time in the world to catch the killer and that would violate the ticking clock convention of the thriller. So how are the conventions going to help me edit my novel? Well, as we've, I hope I've made clear here, the conventions are part of the overall expectation that a reader brings to a story or a movie. Meet them in some interesting way and you satisfy the reader. Fail to meet them and you will leave your reader feeling unsatisfied. It's really that simple. And if you meet them by doing them exactly the way famous movies or famous novels have already done, your reader will be bored. Think up every variation you can on a convention, knowing that the first 10 will be cliches. Sean talks about this a lot. Spit out 10 ideas. When you get to the 11th, it's like then you've skimmed all the scum off the top of the pond and you get to the pure water of something fresh. So when you know your genre and you've reached a second or third draft, then you can look at the list. There's a list of conventions. We've covered them all in, in these podcasts for your genre and make sure that you've hit them all. And then check that you've innovated. Check that it wasn't the first thing that popped into your mind. Two lovers meet at a singles bar. Come on, do better than that. When you do this, you'll be amazed at how much tighter and better your story can be. And a lot more interesting. Yep. Great explanation and love the, love the examples as well. These conventions are important. They're kind of the look and feel or the aesthetic of your story. When you say, oh, this, oh, wow, this, this story appeals to me, a lot of the time as the aesthetics of the story, these conventions, the reason why StoryGrid as a framework is, is so valuable is that whatever you're building, you have a solid foundation in which to put it on. The next part of this is the obligatory scenes, which, uh, which Kim is going to go through. So Kim, take it away. Thanks, Jari. Okay, obligatory scenes. What the heck are these things? Obligatory scenes are the must-have moments in a story. Kim Hudson, the author of The Virgin's Promise, defines them as key events, decisions, and discoveries that move the protagonist along his or her journey. These key moments will evoke emotional reactions in the reader, and they pay off the raised expectations of the conventions. So where do they come from? Well, they come from conventions. They're a natural progression from the conventions. So the conventions are the required content ingredients that set up the particular change. They set up the life value shift because of the you know, cast of characters or the setting, etc. So where do they come from? Obligatory scenes are a natural progression from conventions. So conventions are like the ingredients that set up the particular change, the life value shift in the protagonist, and it creates these reader expectations, the short-term and long-term hopes and fears for the protagonist. So do we hope that their situation will get better or do we fear that it will get worse? And it creates these emotions in the reader that must be paid off. So the obligatory scenes are these key structural moments that pay off those expectations set up by those conventions. 
So the obligatory scenes are genre-specific because the conventions are genre-specific. And yet you'll find that many of them overlap because humanity has a natural process of how we experience or avoid change. And obligatory scenes are the sequential flow of events that connect the genre content, the life values, and the conventions with the structure of the story, those five commandments that Leslie was talking to us about. So obligatory scenes are a great sweet spot in between those elements that really tie everything together. And that's exactly why you need them. So like everything about genre, obligatory scenes are all about a reader's expectation. If you forsake them in your chosen genre, you're not being faithful to the pattern of meaning that the genre represents. So the life value change that's required for your genre won't be executed in a way that's clear and authentic to the audience. The obligatory scenes highlight the change and evoke those emotions that bring the reader through that change. Without these key scenes in the beginning hook, the middle build, and the ending payoff, the reader is left confused about what story is actually taking place. So let's talk about the core event, which is an obligatory scene for all genres, and it's where our core emotion is at its highest peak. And let's look at some examples. So let's just imagine an action story, which is about life and death, where if we didn't have the final showdown with the villain, where we fear for our hero's survival, and remember, you can't have a face-off with the villain without that initial attack by the villain, and you can't face them down if you never discover who they are. So again, that kind of shows us why we have these obligatory scenes about an inciting attack by a villain, um, the moment when we discover who the villain is and what the MacGuffin is, and when we have to face them down in a final life-and-death showdown. Now, imagine a crime story without that final solving the case scene where we unveil the killer. We would not be very satisfied with our crime story. And on the same token, you can't solve a case without discovering the crime in the first place. So that kind of shows us the beginning and ending um, obligatory scenes for a crime story. And to continue, imagine a war story without the big battle at the end or the Western without that final showdown a love story without the proof of love, society without revolution, or a performance story where there's no big performance at the end. Can you imagine Rocky if he never actually fights Apollo Creed? You might still have a story, but it's not a performance story. So with all of that, how is that going to help me edit my novel? Well, once you know and wholeheartedly embrace that obligatory scenes are not optional, you can look for them in your story. Do they exist? Are they in the right location that's the most impactful? Are they executed in a strong way that evokes emotions? Are they executed in an innovative way that defies cliche or expectation while still paying off that expectation? So obligatory scenes are basically what you must know and what you must do in order to execute a story effectively. So like G.I. Joe says, knowing is half the battle. So now just go do it. Thanks, Kim. I love the G.I. Joe reference. Love love playing with those as a kid. These obligatory scenes, whatever genre you pick, they're kind of like the features. They have to be there. It's kind of like a phone. You buy a phone. If it doesn't make phone calls, I mean, it's really not a phone. So there are certain things that just have to be there. You know, like if it's a phone, accounting software, headphones, or a George Foreman grill, they all have their own unique thing that make them what they are. Now, that doesn't mean that, that you just sort of full-heartedly copy famous movie or famous book and just full-heartedly copy that scene, but you innovate on them so that you're, you set your story, your book apart from the rest and people talk about it and want to read it. So really, really important to know the rules and understand that these are rules as a framework so that you can put your story around the framework and fill it in so that it's uniquely to you and innovative. The next core question 
Number four is the point of view, the narrative device or the forms of narrative drive. And Anne is going to take us through that. What is point of view? This is a bigger question than you'd think. I can tell you absolutely what it isn't. It is absolutely not merely a simple grammatical matter of first person or third person. You'll hear that one thrown around sometimes. You can safely ignore that. Norman Friedman gives us a whole chapter on point of view in fiction, and he takes quite a while to boil it down. We've made that little ebook version of that article available in the show notes if you'd like to read it. Rather than saying point of view, it might be clearer to think of narrative distance. Sean has also used the term narrative altitude. How far removed from the events of the story do you want your reader to feel? How much do you need your reader to know and when? If you use a first-person narrator, for example, who is also your protagonist, or similarly a tight third person strictly from that protagonist's point of view, then your reader can only know what that character knows when they know it or what that character chooses to reveal. On the other hand, if you have a narrator who knows everything, that is, we call that an omniscient narrator, you're free to let your reader know anything at any time from any point of view, which seems great until you have a story reason to withhold information from the reader. And then suddenly the all-knowing narrator doesn't make much sense because if they could tell me something, but they just don't, I feel tricked. I feel cheated. So how do you choose? It depends a lot on the type of story you want to tell and the emotion you want your reader to feel, which will arise to some extent from your genre. And this brings us to narrative drive. There are three kinds of narrative drive, suspense, mystery, and dramatic irony. I'm going to go over them real quickly. If you're after suspense, that's when your reader and your character know the same things at the same time. So you can see how a close first person or a strict third person single point of view would generate suspense. I'm going up the stairs. I hear a creak behind me in the dark. Well, you and I, dear reader, know exactly the same amount, and we both feel the need to know more at the same time. So that's suspense. On the other hand, you may want your reader to enjoy the intrigue of mystery, where the character, say a master detective, knows more than the reader. In that case, a more distant perspective is useful. There's, so to speak, a reporter in the room who can tell the reader what's going on, but not what Hercule Poirot, or the murderer, is actually thinking. We have to wait until he says what he's thinking. And that's mystery. Or maybe you'd like your reader to know more than the character knows. If so, a more all-knowing narrator, an omniscient narrator, can show the reader that the monster is upstairs hiding in the closet and then show the poor victim in your horror story going up the stairs all unknowing so that the reader goes, no, no, don't go up there, don't go up there. This is called dramatic irony. Dramatic irony is also very good for comic effect. So why do you need to know this? Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons, and they go really deep, but let me cover the main one. One of the most common mistakes new novelists make is not nailing down point of view. It's important to make conscious choices about the perspective, where your narrator is standing, and the distance from which any scene is presented. So you can choose to tell an entire story from a single strict point of view, which might be first person or might be third person, or you can choose to zoom the, the metaphorical camera in so close that the reader knows what a character is thinking. You can pull it back so far that the reader can see an entire battlefield. 
You have to make these choices consciously. You can stay with a single point of view throughout your entire story, or you can choose to follow one character than another, but do it consciously. Make the conscious choice. There's a lot to study on this subject, and in some ways it's even bigger and more complex than genre and controlling idea. But if I had to give you one piece of advice, it would be to stick with a single point of view at a time for at least the duration of a whole scene. Now, you'll find older novels where sometimes the point of view switches within the scene, but it, it, don't try that at home. It is hard to get right. It's a master technique. And when you get it wrong, it's known as head hopping. And there are a few better ways to confuse and frustrate your reader than head hopping. So if you're in doubt about head hopping, try reading your whole scene mentally in first person from the perspective of your point of view character and re read it out loud. And the point of view problems will become crystal clear. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Anne. Uh, you know, reading aloud will definitely flush out all of these point of view issues. And it is really important to make your point of view simple and keep it consistent because if you're starting to get confused as the writer, I guarantee you your reader is going to get confused. And the last thing you want to do is make your reader confused. And the classical head hopping type of novel to, to read is Brave New World. It is hard to follow because in some cases, there's three, four, five different points of view hopping around. Um, now, he does that to great effect because, I mean, obviously it's a classic when it comes to a society political story, but it's really hard to pull off, especially for a new novelist. So thanks, Anne, for that. Question number five is the objects of desire, which is what we call the character's wants and needs. And Leslie is going to take us through that. Okay. So the wants and needs within a story are related to your genre choice and the human needs tank that the genre is concerned with. Wants are the character's conscious object of desire, which is related to the external genre. Generally speaking, in an action story, the protagonist wants to save the victim and defeat the villain, and that's related to the survival tank. In a love story, the protagonist wants to find authentic love in a committed relationship, which is related to the human connection and belonging tank. In a crime story, the protagonist wants to expose the criminal, which relates to the safety and security tank. Now, there are other versions of these stories, but those are the basics. Now, when we talk about needs, they are the character's unconscious object of desire, often related to the internal genre, if there is one in the story. Now, not every external genre requires an internal mate, particularly action and crime stories. In those cases, the need is often to survive and obtain security, respectively. If you have an internal genre, let's take worldview maturation as an example, the character generally needs to change their black and white thinking and accept a more nuanced view of the world, which relates to the self-actualization tank. In a status sentimental story, the protagonist needs to alter their definition of success to avoid compromising their inner moral compass, which relates to the self-respect and self-esteem tanks. Now, why do I need to know this? 
Unless you know what your character wants and needs, they won't know how to act. Of course, what I really mean is that you won't necessarily know how to make them act. They would be rudderless, and what they do won't make sense. Also, you won't be able to convey a cohesive cause and effect statement about life, which is the subject of the next core question. Now, how is this going to help me edit my novel? On a basic level, understanding what your character wants and needs will help you with the action they take and the obstacles they face in the story. These should relate directly to what they want and need. And you may notice that there are some interesting relationships between needs and wants in different stories. Often it's the case that the protagonist obtains what they want through what they need, or the character must give up what they want to get what they need, or they refuse to accept the need and lose what they want, or even if they get it, they find it unsatisfying. So it depends on your genre and the result you want for your story, but the key is if you don't know what the character wants and needs, then you won't know how to execute these special relationships that create very satisfying endings. Yeah. It shouldn't be a surprise what your characters are doing. Um, and those should be consistent because you you really want to have your reader not only get to know these characters, but then understand that, oh yeah, that's inevitable that they would do that, but they may have they may do that in a different way. Okay, now we're on to question number six, which is the controlling idea or theme. And Leslie's going to take us through that one. The controlling idea or theme creates a lot of confusion. But what you need to understand is that it is a simple statement that contains the main message of the story in a cause and effect statement about the life value at stake and the human needs tank, both of which are related to the global genre of the story. So if you compare this to motifs or other themes, these are Things like sometimes life isn't fair or it's never too late to change. Now, these are smaller ideas and they might relate to the theme, but they don't express a cause and effect statement about the life value at stake. And that's what we're after here. So here's a basic template for your controlling idea or theme. The global story value and then a verb expressing the result, something like prevails, triumphs, or fails, when the type of character, and then cause of the life value result of within the story. That's not going to make much sense to you, but I wanted to give you that basic template, and you'll find that in the show notes. Let's look at it a couple of examples to make it clear. So the conventional controlling idea in an action story is life prevails when the protagonist overpowers or outwits the antagonist. That's a story that ends positively, of course. In a negatively ending action story, death results when the protagonist fails to overpower or outwit the antagonist. Then let's look at a love story. In a love story, love triumphs when lovers overcome moral failings or sacrifice their needs for the other. That's a positive one. 
The negative would be love fails when lovers don't evolve beyond desire. Okay, so those are conventional controlling ideas. But if we get very specific for our story, we want it to you know, include those elements. So here's a specific example from Wonder Woman, which we discussed earlier this season. Life is preserved when the hero outwits the villain by abandoning her one-dimensional understanding that violence and anger can end war and realizing instead that she must metabolize anger to create peace through love and understanding. So if you break all that apart, you will see those different elements that express a specific cause and effect for the life value change from the beginning of the story to the end. Now, if you're wondering about the conventional controlling ideas for the different content genres, of course, you can find those within the show notes for our other roundtable episodes. Now, why do you need to know this? And how is it going to help me edit my novel? I'm going to put these two together because it's, it's really one main answer. The controlling idea is the main point of your story. It's your true north that provides a filter for making decisions. In the beginning, this will probably be a general statement. And then often, different characters will express different ideas on this central theme. Now, as I said in the beginning, this might be a general statement. And you don't want to spend too much time crafting the perfect controlling idea while you're planning, drafting, or revising in the early stages. You want to start with the typical controlling idea for your genre and then refine it as you go. That's a great point, uh, Leslie. Um, but the great thing about the controlling idea or theme is that when you're down in the weeds trying to figure stuff out, um, you can always go back to that. As you said, it's, it's your guide star, your North Star. It should be as the novel progresses, the main thing that you're focusing on, always go back to the controlling idea and theme to allow it to be consistent. That's a really, uh, really powerful thing. And it's also good uh, when you, again, you're pitching your idea or you're trying to summarize it to friends and family or someone that wants to write about it. Um, it's sort of like your, your elevator pitch. Everyone that writes that has some sort of creative product, you should be able to distill it down really quickly. So if someone asks, hey, what's your novel about? You should be able to tell them within 10 seconds. Well, great. So now we're on to some of the frequently asked questions uh, that we've been getting um, through reviews and the Twitter account, which is StoryGridRT. So let me go through these real quick. The first one is, why do you analyze movies when most of the StoryGrid community is writing books? Well, we talked a little bit about this when we first started, a little bit of history about how the roundtable um, actually did get started. We were going to go, all of us, to the editor certification class and decided to form a study group. And so as you know, diligent people, <laughs> we decided, hey, how are we going to study this so that we are prepared for when we go to the certification? And we actually started out with short stories and parts of novels. And then we realized, oh, we're, we're not getting the full macro global view. We're not really exercising these six core questions. So we decided to use movies because they're a lot more accessible. They're fixed in length and great movies have great insights into stories. Unfortunately, I don't know if we'd be able to, you know, read an entire novel each week. 
uh, nor would I think the listeners. So we just felt that movies were the best way to go to get through the 12 content genres. Because as we were studying for our certifications, we realized that the more time, the more thought we had, the more we looked at these things, the more that we analyzed movies as rapidly as we could, the more insights we would get when we were reading a classic or we're reading our own stuff or reading some of our clients' stuff. So that was one of the, the main reasons. We may, in the future, dig into a novel, but we kind of wanted to get the core of what StoryGrid's about and get through a couple of these content genres so that you as the listener could kind of understand where all this is coming from. Yeah, and I just wanted to add one thing too. We need to remember the difference between screenwriters and novelists. Screenwriters study story structure at film school for several years. Novelists, if they decide to study creative writing at a post-secondary level, the focus is not on story structure, it's on grammar and writing pretty sentences. Both are important. The problem we have as novelists is that we're not taught story structure. Novelists tend to let the muse guide them and, and think that that is what novel writing is, whereas screenwriters are very firm with their structure. So are people who write stage plays. The thing we need to remember is that we're all in the same business. We're all storytellers. It's just the medium that changes. But because the medium changes doesn't mean that the need for story structure has gone away. So often we'll find that a movie has a much better structure than a novel. How many times have you read a book and then gone to a film and the film is quite a bit changed? The kid's book, Rick Riordan's uh, Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief is a huge example of this. If you haven't read it, I recommend that you read the book and then watch the movie. The book is weird and it's got a great big, I mean, it's fun. It's got a great premise, but there's a big fat deus ex machina at the end of it, which makes you feel completely robbed. When you go to the movie, the structure is solid. So that's kind of another reason why we're looking at films, because the structure tends to be a little more reliable. That is until StoryGrid takes over the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very good point, Valerie. Very good point. Very good point. Uh, so the next question is, does analyzing movies spoil them for you? Not for me. I mean, I really like the fact that when I look at a, a movie now, um, because of StoryGrid, I can understand the structure. Who it really spoils it for is my girlfriend because I'm always commenting on what I think might happen next. And I used to not do that. And now I started do, doing that after learning the story grid. And, you know, that'll ruin it for the people that watch movies with me. Um, I'm trying really hard now. I'm in recovery for that. So uh, I'm really trying to do, do that less. Um, but for me, I just like it because when you see a good website or a good product design, you can appreciate the benefits of it. You can appreciate why you like it. And I think as a writer, especially the kind of writing I do, which is mostly nonfiction uh, and mostly copy for businesses and being an entrepreneur, I really value looking at good stories and figuring out how I can learn from them. So it doesn't ruin it for me, but sometimes it ruins it for the, the people around me. The next question is, not all good stories follow this formula. Isn't this kind of thing the problem with the endless action movies Hollywood pumps out that are so predictable? Well, uh, you know, I, I really think all 
good stories follow some kind of framework. For me, the story grid is not a formula. It's a framework, like a computer language or, or a product type. I mean, there's just like fundamental pieces you have to have and all the parts have to be there, you know, or your story is is not going to be something that people talk about. I mean, you know, for me being an entrepreneur, uh, writing a book is just like writing a startup. For me, all authors are entrepreneurs, whether they like it or not. And sometimes they don't like to think of it that way. And we have the same problem in the entrepreneur community. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs think they can just wander off in the woods and come back with something quote unquote innovative and new and nifty and cool without adhering to some of the fundamentals of business or, or even product design. And what's really interesting is that the odds of hitting a company out of the park are about the same as hitting a blockbuster book. And that's like roughly 1%. So just imagine 1% of all startups actually make it to, to be a unicorn. And roughly, you know, 1% of all books become blockbusters. So just like a company, if you do not deliver what the customer or the reader has as an expectation, and you don't deliver that in a unique and novel way, you're just going to be lost in the noise. It's just not going to be memorable, which is totally fine. I mean, if you just want to, you know, do your book or your art for your friends and family, hey, you know, your creative process is how you, what you want to get out of it. But it does does really boil down to what you want to get out of your artistic journey. And, you know, this framework of StoryGrid is a really powerful tool. And we as obviously StoryGrid certified editors believe in the process. We believe in the framework. Um, and for us, it's really, really important to have a common language so that we can help people more. And, and, and I think that's a really important thing to think about as well. As a writer, you want to have excellent feedback. You want it get better. And when you hire an editor, that's what you want. And that actually leads us to the next question, which is, what is the right time to work with a story grid editor? Yes. Okay. So yesterday I had the most amazing privilege of meeting up in person with a couple of our participants from the story grid level up your summer semester. You know, we're all from Washington and we met in central Washington and at some point, um, one of the gals, Julie, she's working on a big idea, nonfiction story, and she knows that her idea holds water, but she doesn't have a, a written manuscript yet. She hasn't really written a single word of the actual manuscript, but she has all of her pieces put together and, and just really trying to get to the point where she can actually work with an editor. And in, in everything she was saying, I, I had to stop her and I said, wait, you know you can work with an editor whenever you want, right? And she was like, well, wait, what do you mean? And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like story grid editors, like we can help you wherever you are in your process. And I went on to explain like the different services and like you can do this or this depending on where you're at. And she goes, wait, I don't think we all know that. Can you tell people that? Can you explain that? Because I think, you know, she was worried that people don't understand what we do or how we do it or how we can help. And and she she asked that I clarify. And so I'm, I'm happy to do so. So to state it very clearly, working with an editor, um, a story grid editor, is not something you have to wait to do. There's no prerequisite, okay? The kind of service that you engage in will depend on where you're at in your process. If you have a finished manuscript, that means that you'd be eligible to do a diagnostic, which is a manuscript evaluation. But if not, then you can always do ongoing developmental editing where we have weekly calls and coaching and we basically give you help exactly where you need it. So, this is something you can benefit from at any point in your process if that's something that you're interested in. And so I, I bring this up, you know, not as a hard selling technique, but simply because we really want to inform you and encourage you that if you need help, that that's precisely what we're here for. So don't, you know, flounder alone. Um, if you if you really need help, then then please reach out. 
So just a couple things. So when it comes to a diagnostic or a manuscript evaluation, certainly it's beneficial for a writer to have taken it as far as they can take it on their own. If they know things to fix, please go ahead and take the time to do those steps that you know before you invest funds to having someone else look into it. But if you're stuck and you don't know how to take it any further and you've exhausted every avenue of your own, then that is a great time, no matter how perfect or imperfect you you believe your manuscript is, to get another brain in the mix with you. And that is essentially what's so wonderful about ongoing developmental editing is that you get that brain in the mix with you at any point in the process. You could be just having an idea. You could be you know trying to outline and put your idea together. So this could be at any point in your process, whether you know, you're just forming your idea or you're outlining the idea, putting it together, trying to answer the six core questions before you start your draft. Maybe you're drafting and you're trying to just get through the accountability of writing a scene and getting words on paper every day. Or, or maybe you're to the point where you have a full manuscript and you're editing yourself. You want help filling out the story grid spreadsheet and how am I supposed to do this and that kind of thing. We're here to help you at any point in that process. And there's 19 of us that are we're eager and willing, and this is what we live for, and this is what we're here to do. So um, again, it's not. this isn't intended to be a hard sell. This is just about giving you permission to get the help that you need whenever you need it. And I know for myself and for my fellow editors, like that's what this job is all about, and that's what we're here to do, is to meet writers exactly where they are and help them create stories that are meaningful to put those gifts out into the world so we can all, we all want better stories, and we need you to tell yours. So true being on this podcast, talking to all of the editors and looking at other ways to tell stories better has just been a huge benefit. And I don't necessarily have a lot of fiction ideas, but I'll tell you, I did write a novel during NaNoWriMo that uh, I actually hired Leslie to help me with. We went through it all and kind of determined that it shouldn't have been my first novel. And that was a hard thing to swallow. You know, sometimes you need that second set of eyes to kind of bring you back down to reality and get you out of your own head. And that's a very powerful thing. Wherever you are in your journey as a writer, just realize that it is okay to ask for help. It is okay to even have specific questions or just have a general, hey, I don't know what I'm trying to do. And I really love, Kim, given permission to explore uh, what you may want to do. So that's really, really great. Well, that wraps it up for this special edition of the Story Grid Editor Roundtable. I hope this helps you understand a little bit more about the Story Grid method and framework. Hope it makes it a little less scary. We all know that sometimes this can be a little overwhelming. Part of the reason, again, we wanted to do this podcast is to make it accessible to lots and lots of different writers. So thank you, Anne, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie for wonderful insights into the editor's six core questions. You can find all the materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. We'd also like to invite our listeners in the StoryGrid community to comment and argue with us about our interpretations and uh, what we've talked about. Send us a note on Twitter at StoryGridRT. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit StoryGrid.com editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us and by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher. We do read the comments and we really do appreciate them, both the positive and the constructive. So we are listening. 
Thank you for joining us and we will see you next week.